in case you had any doubt that the most beautiful instrument God created is the human voice, I would say we just had evidence to uh, settle the case once and for all. Uh, maybe with the violin being a second, perhaps. And in case you didn't know, there was actually three uh, mother-daughter combinations up here on the platform. Tremendous blessing. Beloved, as Christians, we at a time such as this on Christmas, Merry Christmas, on Christmas we uh, ask the question, we make sure the question is asked, what is the reason for the season? As believers, as new creatures in Christ Jesus, we know the answer, the reason for the season is Jesus. And that is sufficient. He is sufficient. However, as good students of the word, we mustn't stop there. We must probe to another level deeper and ask the question, what is the reason for the reason? That is to say, what is the reason for the reason for the season? Namely, why did Jesus come? And to answer this, we need to go back to the beginning. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beloved, triggers the whole history of redemption that concerns the rest of God's revelation, the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is, we find, contained within this chapter, the first glimmer of the gospel. This is the fall, but the account of the fall records not only God's judgment on God's righteous judgment from the holy creator God of the universe but also his promised rescue from his righteous punishment of sin our primary text this morning is verse 15 and this verse beloved towers over the rest of scripture Martin Luther said of this one verse, the text, this text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in Scripture. Beloved, we have here the first messianic prophecy. Theologians call this a proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first good news. This is the first glimpse of the heart of the tender, compassionate, long-suffering, patient, shepherding creator God of the universe, seeking to save that which was just lost in this account. Uh, the title for the passage this morning, beloved, is A Promised Son, the Beginning of the Christmas Story. Hear the word of God, beloved, as I begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, our primary text is verse 15, but we want the whole picture. This is the word of God, Genesis chapter 3 and Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. <clears throat> and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened 
and that they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Alistair Begg had these choice words in describing the entirety of the gospel message that is necessary for Salvation. This is what Pastor Begg said. He said, quote, It's good to think of the Bible actually as a two-act play. If you only come in for the second half of the play, then you've no idea who the characters are because you weren't present for the beginning. If you leave at halftime, then you've no idea how it ends. And that's why we say it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian, end quote. Beloved, here in this seminal beginning Chapter 3 of Genesis, we have condemnation and salvation. We have guilt and grace. We have good news and bad news. And as we'll proceed through this, what we'll look at is we'll see the entrance of sudden sin, followed by certain judgment. And then that one verse, verse 15, is a seed promise. And Our heart behind this would be a heart cry, a prayer to the Lord, which we would always have as we approach the pages of Scripture at any point in time, especially on a Christmas Lord's Day morning as we have here today, which is, Lord, make your book live to me. Show me, God, yourself in the pages of your book. Show me myself and show me again anew, afresh, my Savior. May that be the case even here this morning. First, beloved, a brief look at verses 1 through 13 where we see sudden sin. Having said that, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 
The first two chapters describes the newly created universe without sin. The last two chapters describe the new heavens and the new earth also without sin. The middle 1,185 verses or excuse me, chapters have sin within them. And Genesis 3 is the launching point for the other 1,185 chapters with sin, all of which leading to salvation, leading to adoption, leading to redemption, justification, sanctification, eventual glorification. Now, here in verse 1, we know that Adam and Eve were just created. They have everything everything pertaining to life and goodness, everything that they would need for full joy and full satisfaction. The question before them is, will you believe God's word? Will you trust God's plan? And what we read in verse 1 is the serpent. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. What the serpent, what Satan behind serpent does here is he attacks God's order of creation and he assaults God's word of revelation. His nefarious tactics are the demolition of God's order and the deconstruction of God's word. Uh, His first tactic is the demolition of God's order. What he does is he subtly assaults God's order by addressing the woman, not the man. Uh, We read later on that in a later verse after one that the man was with her there together even at this point in time, but he addresses the woman. Already we know prior to this, men and women were created in God's image, ontologically equal, equal of worth and essence. But there is a hierarchical order that the husband is to be the head of the woman. So right here before the father of lies, Satan even speaks. Before he utters his first words of temptation, he has an assault on God's order of creation by addressing the woman. His next tactic is the deconstruction of God's word. The serpent, the father of lies, distorts God's word, you'll see there in verse 1, with a seemingly innocent question. He says, Indeed, has God said, has God really said this? This is the first act of liberalism that we see in human history, in any history for that matter. We see the first question mark within the Bible where the word of God becomes a matter of debate rather than a matter of declarative, definite statement. Rather than God said it, that settles it. He throws out to the woman that she should question the word of God. Uh, The serpent attacks God's authority in verse 4. He attacks God's integrity in verse 5. He doubts God, or he places doubts of God's word, and he places doubts of God's goodness. He questions God's goodness. God, we know as we've been reading through Genesis, had pronounced his creation good. It was very good. And the essential lie of Satan is that there is a greater good than the goodness that God has graciously bestowed upon you. Beloved, the word of God in Genesis 1 and 2 brings life and order. The word of Satan in Genesis 3 brings death and disorder. And 
as we see the woman's response, basically the woman has scripture misquoted to her by the serpent. And sadly, she turns around and she misquotes scripture back to the serpent. In verse 3, she says, you shall not eat from it, which was correct. God did command her to not eat from it. But then she adds to the word of God and says, or touch it. This is the first act of legalism of man, or in this case, woman, adding to the word of God. And as we continue, we see that her eyes were larger than her ears. Rather than trusting her ears, which had received the revelation, the command from God, she relied on her eyes. Verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. So we've seen the first act of liberalism, the first act of legalism. Now we see the first acts of sensationalism and materialism. There's nothing new under the sun. This is part of the deconstruction of the word of God, which is, again, nothing new. That's precisely the nefarious tactic, not just of Satan and the serpent in the garden. That's the nefarious tactic, the evil tactic of government, media, education. It's assaulting from all walks of life now. There's no new thing here. And then the rest of verse 6, it says, And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so thus sin enters into God's created universe. And beloved, dear friend, this is what we need to understand, the severity of sin. Sin is a violation. It's defiling. It's a pollutant. A sin is the soul what scars are to a beautiful face, what a stain is to a white cloth. Sin is like ugly oozing sores of a deadly plague. Sin stains the soul and scars the image of man, or excuse me, the image of God in man. The 19th century Scottish preacher Thomas Guthrie had these words describing the severity and the deadly nature of sin. He said this, quote, Who is the hoary sexton that digs a man's grave? Who's the painted temptress that steals his virtue? Who's the murderer who destroys his life? Who's the sorcerer who first deceives and then damns the soul? Sin. He continues, Who with icy breath blights the fair blossoms of youth? Who breaks the hearts of parents? Who brings old men's gray hairs with sorrow to the grave? Sin. Pastor Guthrie finishes, Who changes gentle children into vipers, tender mothers into monsters, and fathers into worse than Herod's? Sin. Who casts the apple of discord on household hearths? Who who lights the torch of war and leads it blazing over trembling lands? Sin. Beloved, sin is severe. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, another Quote, in The Weight of Glory, which is a compilation of nine sermons that C.S. Lewis preached during World War II, C.S. Lewis gives a picture of what human beings are like who aren't satisfied with God's order, with God's word, with God's charge, with what God provides. This is what Lewis said. He said, quote, we're like children making mud pies in a puddle on the side of the street. When the creator has prepared a beautiful vacation at the ocean. A a lavish banquet for us. 
Or one more, Vadi Bakum. I love what he has to say. Vadi Bakum says about the dynamic, about the reality that every human being is born a sinner, born a rebel, born one who will transgress the ordinance of God. As wonderful and as cute as babies are, babies are born depraved. This is what Vadi Bakum says. He says, God makes, talking about babies, God makes them small so they won't kill us. He makes them cute so we won't kill them. <laughs> Beloved, back on task. The test given to Adam and Eve in the garden is the same test given to you and to me. Will you believe God's word? Will you trust God's plan? Or will you Believe whatever you want to believe and trust whomever or whatever you choose to trust. The ultimate question is not whether or not someone believes in God. Every atheist and agnostic know that God exists, yet they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. The real question is, will you believe God? Will you believe the word of God and trust the plan of God? Well, the result of this fall. The result of this sudden sin, verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Beauty and intimacy are replaced by brokenness and isolation. A friend, understand this, private sin on earth is public scandal in heaven. God's eyes see all. They search to and fro. There is nothing hidden from his sight. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man, asked him questions. And understand this, God does not ask questions because he needs information. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows exactly what happens. And he knows the heart of man and the heart of woman, of why it happened. So he doesn't ask to gather the information. He asks so as to probe the conscience and engender conviction and confession. Beloved, God exposes in order that he might cover. He reveals so that he might forgive. So even here, when we read the tragic unfolding events of the fall of man and the sin in God's judgment, there is a bright ray of sunshine and blessing and grace and mercy here. But we continue man's response, Adam's not there yet. We see in verse 10 the beginning of narcissism, of love of self, to the point that it neglects others. Verse 10, Adam responds to God and says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Do you notice something there? I, 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 myself. Where's Eve? No recognition of Eve. This is, the, this is a demonstration of the satanic trinity, me, myself, and I. This is the beginning of narcissism. This is the beginning of blame shifting. He continues, and, and like the drunkard who says, who wants to blame the bartender, Adam says to God, the woman you gave me, she gave to me, and I ate. It's not my fault, it's my wife's fault. And it's ultimately your fault, God, because you gave her to me. Wah, 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 blame shifting, narcissism. He is just sinking deeper and deeper. And beloved, dear friend, as I said before, the same test that's given to Adam and Eve is given to you and to me. Will we believe, will you believe God's word? Will you trust his plan? So, 
What's the reason for the season? Jesus. What is the reason for the reason for the season? It's because of sin. It's because of sin. That's why Jesus came. But as good students of the word, we want to probe one more level. There's a final level. There's one terminus depth into which we must peer. What's the reason for the reason for the reason for the season? And if you're tracking that, in other words, why sin? Why did God, why did the holy, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God allow sin to enter into his world. And one more quote from Vadi Bauckham. I heard this week, it was a great one. Uh, what Dr. Bauckham said, what Pastor Bauckham said was, anytime you hear the question, why did God dot, 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 the answer always is to maximize his glory. Beloved, dear friend, God did not allow sin to enter into his created world. He is sovereign over all things. He has foreordained whatsoever may come to pass. He sovereignly allowed sin into his universe for his own good purpose and in a way that it doesn't stain or shadow or even have a hint of harm to his perfect holiness. He did it to maximize his glory. And that is the sudden sin that we see now as we move to verses 14 through 19. We see the certain judgment that falls as a result of the sin. And beloved, dear friend, understand this. We can only understand the consequences of sin insofar as we understand the holiness of God. We cannot understand, conversely, the grace of God if we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. And what we see is God pronounces three judgments. He pronounces judgment on the serpent, judgment on the woman, and judgment on the man. And what we will see in verse 15 is not just judgment, but he pronounces grace and mercy on the woman and on the man. So first, briefly, his judgment on the serpent, verse 14. And by the way, verse 14, the judgment is directed more towards the serpent. Verse 15, the judgment is pronounced more towards Satan, who's behind the serpent. He says, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. What this tells us is all of the animal kingdom is affected by the fall and this curse, but the serpent more. We know that with the rest of Scripture that Satan wanted to exalt himself. He wasn't satisfied with his position, which seems to be some kind of perhaps worship leader in heaven, according to Ezekiel 28. And according to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, Lucifer wanted to exalt himself, and God cast him out of heaven. And what we have here in Genesis 3.14 is a forever reminder from God of the severity and the justice and the righteousness of his holy judgment on the serpent. Every time you see a snake, it should be a reminder that God is holy. And this is a permanent punishment that he would, uh, he who tempted Eve to eat will eat dust all the days of his life. So this is a forever reminder. And on a side note, this continues even into the millennium. So 
Isaiah 65, verse 25, the beginning of it, you'll be familiar with the concept. You read the words, this is describing life in the millennium. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. We're familiar with that. But the last part of the verse says, listen, and dust shall be the serpent's food. So again, this is a forever physical reminder that even goes all the way into the millennium. We'll skip verse 15 for a moment. We'll return to that back with the seed promise. But now for a moment, imagine the perspective of Adam and Eve. What kind, so the serpent must have been a beautiful and upright creature prior to this. Can you imagine the horror of Adam and Eve when they see this once beautiful, upright creature transmogrified, transformed into an ugly, slithering snake? And more to the point, what should they expect at whatever level they perhaps understand now that they are the apex of God's creation, that they were made in the image of God, unlike any of the animals. So their sin was greater in some ways than the sin of Satan. What should they expect from God except the same kind of judgment? And we do see in verses 16 through 19 that God does pronounce judgment on both the woman and the man. <clears throat> the uh, judgment on the man is longer than the judgment on the woman because this is the flip side of the hierarchical role relationship of man and woman, again, who are equal in worth and essence, but there is a hierarchy there. Because of that, the man as the leader, he incurs the stricter judgment. The judgment is greater. And what's fascinating is we see that all of creation is now subject to vanity, not because of Satan. Yes, God did curse the serpent in verse 14 that he would be cursed more than the rest of the beasts, but in verses 17 through 19, three times God says to the man, because you, because you, because you. That is why. There's no blame shifting here. There's no, the devil made me do it. There's no, my wife made me do it. There's no, God, you are to blame because you gave me my wife. No, because you, Adam, you, you. Because of that, God's creation here deteriorates into disorder and decay. God allows already created structures to deform into disorder and death. Things that were previously beneficial deteriorate into malevolent characteristics. Smoothly, for example, smoothly rounded plant structures morph and deform into thorns. Animal teeth and nails, which were originally designed for a vegetarian diet. Prior to the fall, all animals were vegetarian. But now as a result of the fact that death entered in the world because one man sinned, again, animal teeth and nails that were designed for a vegetarian diet mutate into fangs and claws. Mutation is not good. It doesn't produce the X-Men. It produces death, sorry for the cultural reference. It produces death and disorder. There's no such thing as evolution. There's only devolution. All things wear out. Watches, bodies, stars. And humor me, this is the entrance of the second law of thermodynamics into the world. But I digress on that. Beloved, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 12, 4, how long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it 
animals and birds have been snatched away. What God says here at the beginning to the man is because of you, because you, because you. Why does a deer, one might ask the question, why does a deer break its leg and suffer pain in the woods when there's no human being there to see that and to realize the impact of sin? Beloved, the answer is given here, because you, Adam, because you, man. And what you see in verses 16 through 19 is God's judgment on the woman and the man are in the domain of their primary responsibilities and their highest fulfillment, the womb and work, home and the field. One of the dynamics, one of the manifestations of this is, and it's even captured in the text, because men are stronger Sinful men are often harsh and violent to their wives. And this is something that is captured and even sanctioned in some cultures. Some Islamic cultures, for example, uh, sanction this perversity of the created order. On the other side, there are sinful women who exploit men in different cultures. Ours, for example. The point is, one sinful culture sanctions one perversion of God's created order. And another sinful culture sanctions a different side of God's created order. And we can ask the question because it goes on. Children are a blessing. We love babies. We love children under any circumstance every time here at Santan Bible Church. Here's the question, beloved, as this continuing cycle goes on. And this is what the humanist in the seminary or in the etc., the other structures I mentioned before, man is basically good. So we can ask the question, if man is basically good, if we just have a few areas that need a little bit of tweaking, why did the creator God of the universe enter and live a life as a man, tempted as we are, yet without sin? And even more to the point, why did Jesus Christ voluntarily die a torturous, agonizing death at the cross if we're good and we just need a little bit of tweaking. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. God doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves you despite the way you are. He, loves, he doesn't love me just the way I am. He loves me despite the way I am, certainly before salvation, but even afterwards as well. And the reality is, in the context of Christmas, People want the gift, but they don't want the giver. And we can't be saved. We can't be saved until we own up to the fact that we're lost. I originally was thinking to say we can't be saved until we know that we're lost. But I will tweak that because, again, given the fact that every man and woman knows that God exists and suppress that truth and unrighteousness, we need to repent and own up and fully realize and admit that we are lost to be saved. We need to understand we don't need someone to fix us. We don't need someone to help us. We need someone to save us. We need someone to redeem us. We need someone to adopt us into his family. And beloved, dear friend, only when we think rightly about sin are we in a position to be able to think rightly about the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. So this is this sudden sin and certain judgment. This is the black velvet backdrop against which the diamond of God's grace is placed in verse 15. This is the seed promise. Verse 15. 
God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The prince of preachers, as many people call Charles Spurgeon, at least from the 19th century, said this about this verse. He said, this is the first gospel sermon ever delivered on the surface of the earth. It was memorable discourse indeed, with Yahweh himself as the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness as audience. It must, therefore, be worthy of our heartiest attention. Beloved, what we see here is the sure judgment of God is right here in the midst of his pronouncement of judgment on the serpent. The sure judgment of God is met with the swift mercy of God. And what we see is sovereign initiative. We see merciful promise and we see victorious substitutes. Sovereign initiative. Notice the first two words. I will. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Beloved, those two beautiful words, I will, that is the beginning of the good news. That is the beginning of the gospel. Without God saying, I will, there is, there's no creation. There's no salvation. There's no redemption. There's no hope. There's no joy. All of the good things in life, God's common mercies to all of his creation and God's special graces and mercies to his adopted children, they all begin with God saying, I will. And understand this here. This is sovereign initiative, but it is not merely sovereign initiative. It is sovereign initiative and sovereign accomplishment. God will do, he is able and will do what he says he will do. We also see merciful promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he continues, and between your seed and her seed. There's a spiritual fatherhood here. Beloved, this is the beginning of the search for the seed that continues especially in the ensuing chapters of Genesis and really all through the rest of the Old Testament. In Genesis 4, the next chapter, Genesis 4, 25, when Eve, which by the way, Adam named the woman Eve, which means the mother of all the living. When Eve gave birth to Seth, she described him as an offspring, a seed. Uh, chapter 9, verse 9, when God, when God made his covenant with Noah, when Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives came off the ark after the flood and God established his covenant with Noah, he established it with Noah and his descendants, his seed, plural seed. The land promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7 was to Abraham and to his descendants, to his seed. Three times in chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, and then again in chapter 15, God promises Abraham that your descendants, your seed, will be numerous like the stars of the sky and like the dust of the earth. And it's mentioned seven times in Genesis 17, and it goes on all the way to, I don't have time here, but I commend for your future reference. Look at Galatians 3, verses 16 and 19. Beloved, the rest of the Old Testament and even penetrating into the New Testament is the search for the singular seed, which we know is realized in the babe in the manger, the child that was born to a virgin, the man, Jesus Christ. And 
This foundation that is laid for the search of the seed is the anticipation and the expectation of God's redemptive history that he marked out even in eternity past. So there's sovereign initiative, there's merciful promise. Finally, there is victorious substitute. God says at the end of verse 15, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Literally, he shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. The head crushing is fatal. The heel crushing is wounding. This is right here, judgment for the serpent and it is grace for the woman and for the man. That's why, for example, the apostle Paul when he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, he wraps up that incredible letter with the great treatise on salvation. Romans 16, verse 20, he says, The God of peace, and do we not sing of peace? Do we not think of peace around Christmas time? The Apostle Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hearkening back to this seed promise God gave in this first gospel sermon declaration statement in Genesis 3, verse 15. Satan thought this world would be the arena of his victory over God and good. Instead, despite its frailty, despite the wickedness, despite the devolution and just the decay that we see, morally speaking, it is the grand arena of divine wisdom, love, grace, and power. Beloved, dear friend, even heaven itself isn't as rich with mercy as the earth because it's here that the promised seed poured out his blood on behalf of the many seed, on behalf of his children. Friend, understand this. The man, Jesus Christ, was not a victim at the cross. He was the victor at the cross. He is our victorious substitute. And notice here, beloved, God's promise here, his judgment promise to the serpent, which is a grace promise to the woman and to the man, comes even before he pronounced his words of judgment to the woman and the man in verses 16 through 19. The point here is God's mercy rejoices against God's judgment. Before God told Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God had told the serpent, and past the serpent, had told the woman and the man, he was pleased to say that the seed of the woman would crush the enemy's head. One more point here. Uh, the word cursed, we see it the first two times here in Genesis 3, in verse 14, verse 17. In verse 14, here's the point. God directly places a curse on the serpent. Cursed are you, he says to the serpent. But in a measure of restraint and grace and mercy to the man, he said, cursed is the ground on behalf of you. So he directly curses the serpent. He indirectly curses the man, because he is gracious. Now, if you want a focal point, if you want a place, if we talk about this verse which towers over the rest of Scripture, and if you want to know where we should plant our flag on this Mount Everest of verses, the little two-letter word, he, is a place where you would plant that. He, it's significant, because 
Well, up to this point, we've been seeing plural, 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 especially in the original Hebrew. We would think if he was going to say something, he would say, they will do this. But no, it's a singular he. Also, the woman has been the human character here. So we would also perhaps think he would say she. But no, he doesn't say plural them. He doesn't say feminine she. He says singular masculine he. This is a promised son. If you were here yesterday in the Christmas Eve service, we looked at Micah chapter 5 where God prophesied that the small little town of Bethlehem would be the honor and have the honor of giving birth to Messiah, which say the Messiah would be born there. And in Micah 5 verse 5, remember the prophet Micah said, this one capitalized, this one will be our peace. He is the promised seed all the way back to the garden of Eden. And part of this dynamic, part of this substitution is man's sin must be dealt with by a man. Animal's blood, the blood of an uh, amoral, irrational creature can't satisfy the sins of a moral, rational creature. That's why in Hebrews 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Or we could even ask the question, if some have done before, why was Jesus born as a baby? If it just needed a man to die, why didn't he, why didn't he just uh, incarnate himself, if I can coin a word? Why didn't he just come down on a Thursday as a man, die on a Friday, and then rise from the grave on Sunday? Beloved, the reason is God's justice. God's justice from Genesis 2, verse 14 and 17 requires Death requires blood, and it requires justice. Yeah, we, it, it, needed, it required a 30-plus years of perfect obedience. Jesus Christ lived for 30 or so years. He never once sinned in his heart or in his mind or in his action. He satisfied all the requirements of God. And even that laid the foundation so that when in his humanity, after 30 years of perfect communion with God as Father in his humanity, he was experiencing the wrath of God. God turned his back on Christ. And while the physical agony he suffered with the torture of crucifixion was horrific, the emotional, spiritual agony he suffered was even greater with the rupture of the perfect communion. And that, beloved, is why he was born as a baby, lived as a boy and as a man. That's why the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He quenched God's righteous wrath on our behalf. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote <clears throat> to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, since by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Our future hope towards our future resurrection, my hope ultimately, of course, to see Christ as he truly is and to even be rejoined with my beloved Margie is built upon the foundation laid in Genesis chapter 3. Beloved, Dear friend, here in Genesis 3, verse 15, the hidden fires of infinite love and grace are sublimely concealed with the spark of this one 
verse. This first gospel sermon was sufficient for Adam and Eve. This one lone star shined in Abel's sky. He looked at it and was satisfied and believed. This torch flamed within the gates of Eden right before man was driven out. It lit up the world for all believers until the Lord was pleased to give more light. Beloved, in the same way the mighty oak tree lies within the acorn, so also the great truths of the gospel of Christ reside in this one verse. The true Christmas story, the true gospel message. This is the beginning of redemption. There's a 19th century hymn, Sing Choirs of New Jerusalem. It's actually a translation of a hymn from the early 11th century, some almost precisely 1,000 years ago, a medieval chorus, Nueve Jerusalem, written by Fulbert of Chartres. Uh, the translation in the 19th century, the stanza reads like this. Listen. For Judah's lion burst his chains and crushed the serpent's head and brought with him from death's domains the long-imprisoned dead. From hell's devouring jaws the prey alone our leader bore. His ransom hosts pursue their way where he hath gone before. Beloved, in the final analysis, the greatest grace of God is seen in his taking the full curse of the punishment that you and I deserve on himself at Calvary. Uh, sin, we read, increased pain in God's judgment on the woman and the man. No pain, though, is equal to the infinite pain, the physical pain and the infinite spiritual and emotional pain Christ suffered at the cross. Sin ushered in thorns. That babe was born so that thorn, a crown of thorns would be plunged into his skull. Sin brought painful, toilful sweat. Jesus sweated great depths, drops of blood. Sin brought in death. Jesus tasted death for all his children. Beloved, dear friend, Jesus is the one who fulfills all the hopes of all the years. He lights up the darkness and he fills up the emptiness. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of Christmas. That's what God promises in Genesis 3, verse 15. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We again thank you, Lord, that you're holy and righteous. We thank you, Lord, that you, even in your sovereignty, you allowed sin to enter into the universe for the good purpose of extolling yourself, of maximizing your glory. We understand love, patience, grace, mercy, rescue, salvation. We understand all of these things that flow from your heart as a saving and as a Savior God from this. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for providing a way of escape, Lord Jesus, by your birth, by your life, by your death, and by your resurrection. Lord, be with us today on this Christmas day. Be with us the rest of the week, the rest of our time to glorify you, to love one another, and to let men and women know that there is a way to be forgiven, that they can be adopted into the beloved by virtue of the once-for-all work you've done. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.